Hello and welcome to PW Kids Cast, the children's book podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors and illustrators creating books for children and teens. I'm John Sellers, the children's reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. Today I'm speaking with Maggie Stiefvater, the best-selling author of the Shiver Trilogy, the Scorpio Races, and the Books of Fairy, among other titles. This spring, Stiefvater is wrapping up her Raven Cycle series of novels, which began in 2012 with The Raven Boys and continued with The Dream Thieves and Blue Lily, Lily Blue. This month, the series comes to a close with the fourth and final book, The Raven King, published by Scholastic Press, which is sponsoring this podcast. Over the four books of The Raven Cycle, readers have followed along as a group of teenagers attempt to locate the Welsh King Glendower, who they hope is lying in eternal sleep somewhere in the wilds of Virginia. Ley lines, psychics, ghosts, characters who can dream things into existence, fast cars, possibly deadly kisses, and some very ruthless adults are just a few of the elements that Steve Fodder blends together in the story of Blue, Gansey, Adam, Ronan, and Noah. Maggie, thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. So like I said, The Raven Boys, that, that first book came out in 2012, but is it right that this story arc and these characters have maybe been with you for uh, longer than that? Yes, I actually started writing this series when I was 18 or 19, and I got a good way through it and then put it down, which was unusual for me. At the time, I thought I had figured out the secret to always finishing every novel that I started, and I just, something was holding me back, and really, I just wasn't good enough to really juggle all of the characters in the series. Hmm. When did you sort of realize that you were ready to return to it? Oh, I had to use all of these tools that I'd learned from my other series to tell you the truth. When I wrote the Shiver Trilogy, it taught me how to really take apart a mythology. I didn't have to use everything that folklore handed to me. I could take what I needed from it. And so I really needed that for the Raven Cycle. And then from the Scorpio Races, it was really the first novel where I, it was a big cast. And so I put both of those things together and I still think that maybe I this book is a little smarter than I am, but I was better at it than I was at 19. Does it feel strange, given that these are characters who, in, maybe in some ways, have been with you since your own teenage years, to finally have it wrapped up, if you feel like it is wrapped up at this point? Yes, thank you, John, for rubbing that in. It, it will come out in therapy, I'm sure. No, it's... I don't know. I have very mixed feelings about it. I always uh, feel kind of empty when I get done with a book anyway. I, like uh, I've been trying to exercise this story inside me. And so it's a good feeling and a bad feeling. I've got lots of other ideas lined up behind, though. You know, I, on your Tumblr, you have a somewhat recent post that talks about the difference between reaching the end of a, a single book or a novel versus reaching the end, essentially, I guess, the end of the greater story you're setting out to tell, if I'm getting your point correctly at all. Can you talk a bit about that distinction and how it relates to this series? When I was worse at writing books, it was easier to get to the end of a book because I didn't realize that there were multiple options for a way a story could go. I would have the idea for why I was writing the story and the why would propel me to the logical end. Now I start out with a why, but I know enough about kind of pushing characters around into different shapes of stories that I can write multiple versions of that story and get to an end, which is not the end, which doesn't answer the question of why I started writing that book. And so with the Raven cycle in particular, there are so many characters that you can move around in so many different ways that I would rewrite huge swaths of chapters until I finally got to the end. To give you an idea of how much I rewrote it, 
I think that the Dream Thieves is 125,000 words long, the finished novel, and my outtakes are 150,000 words. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, along those, those lines, these are, you know, four big complex books with what well, sounds like some big complex stuff that didn't even make it into the books, um, released, you know, in pretty quick succession. I know, you know, a book a year is not unheard of for a lot of authors, but, you know, these are these are substantial books. Has this series been fairly all-consuming from a, a writing standpoint for the last few years? It definitely has been. It's difficult for me to rough draft. Well, no, I should say it's not difficult. It's impossible for me to rough draft two different series at the same time because every single series that I write is really processing the world as I see it in that moment in a very opaque way. You can't go through and see a one-for-one autobiographical, one-for-one plot-to-plot with my life, but still it's processing relationships that I'm going through. And so if I'm writing two different rough drafts at the same time, I'm going to steal the same source material for both of them. So it's just impossible for me. <laughs> She's written the same book with different <laughs> characters' names. And uh, yeah. yes. well, let's go back to the beginning for a little bit. You know, as I mentioned, you know, there's a lot of mystical and historical and other elements uh, at play in the series. Um, what was it, and I guess initially led you to decide that the series was at least partly going to be about an ancient uh, sleeping Welsh king who, who might just grant a favor to somebody who wakens him? Okay, here's a terrible thing to confess, and part of the internet already knows this, but I originally started out with a different Welsh king. Originally, it wasn't Glendower. Originally, it was Llewellyn. There's lots of legends in, well, almost all European folklore about kings that instead of dying, get put someplace underground for safekeeping, and then they'll wake when their country needs a favor. And I always liked the idea of this because going and pulling someone out of time seemed like a profoundly bad idea and profoundly bad ideas are basically my genre. And so I always knew that I wanted to write something about the Sleeping King legend. And it just turned out that the more I learned about Glendower going through my college experience, the more perfectly he slotted into this because he really did have the misfortune of actually vanishing at the end of his life. So he could possibly be sleeping under these Virginia mountains. That's it could be actually nonfiction. And, you know, speaking of the setting, you're based in Virginia, I believe. Are there, are there places you've spent time that have maybe evoked uh, the same sense of magic that, uh, that Cape's Water has in the books? Oh, there's two really magical places that I've been fairly recently. I went to Wistman's Wood, which is in the UK, and it's these stunted, moss-covered oak trees. And it's quite amazing. And the other place that I went was actually a stone circle that's up near the border between Scotland and England. And I remember that I went there on this day that it was kind of spitting rain and the sky was all low and ragged. And I just thought, this is appropriately magical. You're a pretty jaded and cynical person, but I'm going to say this is appropriately magical. Thinking about the characters a little bit, you know, there's a lot of interactions and relationships uh, between them. And as we've said, you know, the cast is not exactly small. Obviously, there's this kiss that everyone is worried about between Blue and Gansey. Um, and their feelings for each other throughout the books affect his relationships with Adam and some of the other boys. But one thing I was curious about is you have these really intense connections between Gansey and the other boys at the Academy. And then on the other hand, you have Blue you know, living in this house of psychically talented women. And I, and I wondered, you know, was looking at the ways that women relate to women and men and, or boys, maybe related boys and men, something that was at the forefront of your mind when you were writing the books? There's actually two things going on there. For starters, um, all of my family is creepy. My mother will often say, oh, you know, you shouldn't do that. I dreamt about that. And it's true that whatever it was, it would it would creepily come to pass. 
And so that very much informed Blue's relationship with the house that she was in. But also what informed that was the idea of not gender, but actually age. Because when I was growing up, most of my friends were either extremely younger than me or much older than I was. And so I wanted the idea of Blue to be in this network where it was multiple ages. And to me, that seems like a healthier place for a teen to be less fraught because teens are still learning about what it means to actually relate to other people. And so meanwhile, you have Gansey who's surrounded by all teens and you can see that it's, it's basically a minefield. It's a mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's also some strong socioeconomic elements in the story. Uh, uh, Gansey's relationships with Adam and Blue kind of spring to mind. But I feel like there's also maybe uh, a larger town and gown thing going on in, in Henrietta. Are those, are those themes important to the larger story that you're, you're telling in the books? Oh, certainly. One of the things that I wanted to talk about the most in this book is, well, this series in general was just what makes a hero and how do you become the person that you end up being? And so digging back into the past of that economic background is such a huge part of it, especially I grew up in Virginia and I moved around all over, but came back to Virginia. And Virginia is such a a world of extremes, of extreme poverty and extreme wealth. It's living right next to each other. And so it's always been very interesting to me. Well, I didn't grow up in Virginia, but I did grow up in Detroit. And I feel like anybody who knows a little bit about you uh, as an author knows about your love of cars. So um, what is the current tally of of what's in the garage, either running or not running? Like I only have three, which is one more than I have children. But still, three is like a a magical number. It's a solid number. I feel that that's a stable number. Mm -hmm. And uh, a Camaro uh, is in the mix. Yes, I have a a 73 Camaro. I have a boosted 2011 Nissan and I have a 2012 Mitsubishi that just got a brand new engine in it. And I'm super excited about that. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the connections between the characters in the books and the cars they drive? Is that something, I mean, I feel like cars are always part of your, your novels. You can sort of, you know, I don't know. Can you talk about that a little bit, I guess? It's true. I, I try to disguise the fact that I'm really into cars, but I'm really into cars. Also, I think it plays really nicely with the idea of one of the themes that I was trying to play with in the series, which is uh, how do you make yourself look on the outside like you look on the inside? All of the teens are quite obsessed with the idea that other people should know them truly and no one knows them truly and they're deeply misunderstood. And so they have all of these ways of making themselves look externally like they feel on the inside. And so you have Gansey, who's quite privileged. And instead of driving a really fancy car instead, he is driving an old busted 73 Camaro, which is mine, which is problematic for a reason, which I'll mention at the end. And uh, you have Ronan, who is misses his father deeply and it's shown by the fact that he drives his father's car and blue who has nothing of her own and she must borrow instead the communal Ford, which is used. So yeah, they're extended metaphors. Now, the reason why it's difficult to actually put my car into these books is because I gave Gansey my 73 Camaro because I love it and I wanted him to love it as well. It's problematic because readers also love this car and they write fan fiction about Gansey and every other character doing things in the back of this car. <laughs> Sometimes my my friends will Google these fan fictions and then they will read them to me out loud with voices. And so now I can never look at my car the same way. This is why it's problematic. And this, you know, of course, not just cars. I, I, I also know that art and I think music are, are big parts of your life. Um, what do you play musically? What are your instruments? I... I'm probably most infamous for the instrument that I was famous for in college. I used to be a competition Highland bagpiper. That is definitely, yeah, an infamous type of uh, 
Okay. <laughs> it is. It's the decibel level, I've been told, of the Highland bagpipes is equivalent to a commercial plane flying at 180 feet above your head. <laughs> so wear earplugs. I used to practice for four hours a day. I was obsessed. I, I mean, that was my life, was playing the bagpipes. Now I do quieter instruments. I have the piano and the harp and the tin whistle, and I've just started the cello. Okay. And I mean, how do these other creative outlets, whether it's drawing or music or even maybe the driving, how do they inform or, or balance out the time you spend uh, writing? Oh, I think it's the other way around, actually. Mm. I think it's impossible to imagine being a writer without having something to write about. I don't think that if I didn't have a life that was not writing, I don't think I would have any stories. And so I have to have these other outlets. Otherwise, ugh, I just don't meet people and I need to steal people in order to put them into books. And have you been drawing as long as you've been writing? Yes, I actually used to have a, a massive crisis when I was a teenager. I thought I would have to give up one of my creative outlets, that I would either have to be a writer or an artist or a musician. I couldn't be all three. And so I have many times wished that I could go back in time and tell myself that I'm wasting all of those hours wailing to myself about which one I have to choose. And, and you've been doing uh, some drawing projects related to the release of the new book, too? Yes, actually, I have to say my heart is the happiest about a project that I did for the ALA. They asked me if I would do a read poster for them with the Raven Cycle characters. And this was a project that's very close to my heart because I was a Navy brat and I moved around all over when I was a kid. And the first thing my mother did was always walk us down to the library and get us a library card. So I spent so much of my childhood in the stacks of libraries looking at these read posters for the Library Association. And to, to be asked to do one was very, was very moved. Excellent. And I've seen, um, what else? I think I saw something called a book hugger uh, to sort of, you know, hug all four books of the series. Uh, and um, a tarot deck last fall. Are those also, you know, those are recent projects you were spending time with? Yeah, I, I really love being able to, at the end of the day, put everything down and just get out my pencils and start working. And it's nice to be able to share it with my readers that way, too, especially because nowadays, you know, it's a tough thing for a teen, especially to make it out to a, a book event. And so it's nice to give them something physical other than the book to reward them for coming out. Mm -hmm. And color pencils, is that your kind of uh, main medium these days? Yeah, I like it. They're, they're fiddly and I like being fiddly. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so speaking of, you know, tour and you know things like that that's that starts up pretty much i think as soon as the book releases uh did you tour for the last book or is this your first uh, big tour in a while i toured for the last book but the last book had a it was a bit of a longer gap so it would have been 18 months and i feel like i've forgotten how to go out and actually talk to people i'm just going to stand there and wave my arms a lot probably and this one's like 20 cities or something yeah rub it in john <laughs> i don't know if i have enough clean underwear for 20 cities mm. no it's good i come home in the middle and i actually i got to drive for all of my center tour back in 2013. So I did 7,000 miles cross country in the Camaro and I don't get to drive that much with this one. I have to fly for the first week, but the rest of it, I get to drive and that makes it a lot more manageable. And will it be your cars or will it be other cars? Uh... It will be my cars. Okay. Very good. You know, I know you've been working on some other books too. I think a middle grade series um, and I think the curiosities that you, you have more books coming with both those uh, kind of co-authors. The thing about The Anatomy of Curiosity is that it's not really a full-length novel. I'm actually really enthusiastic about that project. I was working with two of my critique partners, and we had been asked so many times about revision, especially by teens. How do you even start revising? How do you come up with a story? How do you write? And so we wanted to write a book that 
showed instead of telling how to write and revise a project. And so we each wrote a long novella. I think mine is 20,000 words. And we talked about how we came up with the idea and how we changed the idea and what we needed from each of us before we actually started writing. And so it's not truly co-authoring. Instead, it's three different approaches to writing and revising. So I'm really excited about putting that in the hands of teens. And that's the last one in that series. And then the middle grade series, we've got uh, two more coming up. Excellent. And uh, I thought I'd seen you say somewhere online that you have maybe a standalone novel that you're also working on. I am working on a standalone YA novel. It takes place in Colorado and it's creepy and that's all that I can say. That seems fair. Well, I don't know if this is another horrible question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, Do you feel (laughs) like you are finished with these characters in this world at this point? Or are you sort of keeping keeping your options open? (laughs) This is only a horrible question because it's a trick question. So if I say, no, I feel like I'm totally done. Then later, I already know this from experience. If I come back to him later, everyone will laugh and point at me like they did when I wrote Sinner because I told everyone I was done with that world. And I remember, I remember that very acutely. Mm-hmm. However, if I go and say no, or yes, I might come back to it. Then everyone will ask me when it is that I'm going to start on it. So I'm going to say right now it feels, it feels done. But never say never. I think that's the wisest way to do it. Sounds good. Well, uh, you know, thank you again for taking time to speak with me and uh, congratulations on uh, the new book. <laughs> Thanks again for having me. Once again, I've been speaking with Maggie Stiefvater, whose final book in the Raven Cycle, we think, is The Raven King, out in April from Scholastic Press. Thank you for listening to PW Kidscast. 